Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. This episode of the History of Christianity will be shorter than normal. In it, I will look at two aspects of James who we looked at in more detail in our last episode. Both of the things that we're looking at here are based on blog posts that I have written previously. The first thing about James that we'll look at is the question of whether he really was the physical brother of Jesus. The context for this is a response to atheist Richard Carrier, who argues that James was not the brother of Jesus. Richard Carrier argues that James, who is described as the brother of Jesus, is not really his brother. Why is this important to Carrier? Unlike Catholic apologists who want Mary to be a perpetual virgin, although they do not deny that James and Jesus were related, Carrier needs to break this relationship because he denies that Jesus even existed, and yet James is definitely a historical figure. We seem to be on firm historical ground when Paul writes in Galatians 2.9, When James, Cephas, and John recognized his pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. If James really existed, who was this James? Richard Carrier claims that this is the James who was one of the twelve apostles. But which one? It cannot be James the brother of Zebedee. Luke describes the death of this James in Acts 12.2, and yet describes another James, the head of the Jerusalem church in the rest of Acts. The only other James is the son of Alphaeus. This would be possible except for the fact that the other James is described as the brother of Jesus or the brother of the Lord. Carrier has a ready response to this. James is called the brother of the Lord as another way to say he was a Christian. He observes that the Christians called each other brothers, and this is exactly what we have going on here. It is true that early Christians did call each other brother and sister. This led to accusations of incest by the Roman authorities, but I cannot find anyone else in the New Testament being described as the brother of the Lord. It could be argued that James, the son of Alphaeus, could be called the brother of the Lord because he was especially close to Jesus. The problem with this is that James, son of Alphaeus, only appears in lists of the twelve and does not play an important role. If anyone, we would expect Peter and the sons of Zebedee to be called brothers of Jesus. However, the only one called this is this James, who is not the son of Zebedee. An important passage to take into account is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. First, there is no indication that James the son of Alphaeus will become the James who is in charge of the Jerusalem church. Once again, he's simply a name on a list. But notice that there is a mention of brothers of Jesus. These brothers are paired with Mary, the mother of Jesus. A plain reading of this in context would suggest that brothers means exactly what we would normally mean, male siblings. There are numerous mentions of Mary and the brothers in the Gospels, and they do not seem to be disciples, but rather are skeptical of Jesus' claims. One important verse is Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us. 
This passage indicates that not only did Jesus have brothers, as in siblings, but one was named James. There's another passage we need to look at, and this is from 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Carrier suggests that the latter part of this early creed is an addition, since everyone who saw Jesus was already an apostle, and James the pillar was already one of the twelve. It's not that there is textual evidence that part of this creed is a later addition. Rather, Carrier needs James to be one of the twelve, and so he simply asserts his claim. This is not the only time the carrier does this. There's a passage in Josephus that describes the death of James. James is described as the brother of Jesus, who is called the Christ. Carrier claims that this was a copious error, and that it originally said the brother of Jesus ben Damnus. Again, there is no textual evidence for this. Carrier needs to break the relationship between James and Jesus, and so he inserts an alternative theory. Did Jesus have a brother? Yes, he did. Several, actually. One of them was named James. He was called the brother of the Lord, not because he was a Christian, but because he was Jesus' half-brother. The second thing we're going to look at is whether it is reasonable to claim that James actually wrote the letter attributed to him in the New Testament. This question goes beyond James and also addresses whether Peter and Jude could have written the letters attributed to them. Many scholars doubt that the epistles in the New Testament named after James, Jude, and Peter were actually written by those individuals. There's some logic to that doubt. After all, James, Jude, and Peter were all blue-collar Galileans with no formal education. Yet the Greek and the rhetorical skill found in these letters is far above what you would expect from such men. For many scholars, that's enough to close the case against traditional authorship. However, I think this is making an unfortunate assumption. It is true that if you handed a parchment to James, Jude, and Peter in the early 30s, you probably would have not gotten the quality of epistle, especially in Greek, that we have in the New Testament. But these letters were not written in the early 30s, nor were they written in the context of a blue-collar occupation. These men had a number of decades of high-level church leadership. James and Peter were top leaders of the church, and Jude was likely up there as well. They wrote, not as fishermen or carpenters, but as experienced communicators. They likely had some basic Greek even when they lived in Galilee. We know from Acts that from very early, even before the Gentiles joined the church, there was a significant Greek part of the church. It would have been in their best interest to learn Greek. And just because one is blue-collar does not mean there is a lack of intelligence in gaining language skills. Even so, could they really have written such good Greek? Remember, these are the top leaders of the church. Surely there would be significant resources that went along with that role. There would have been people skilled in Greek language that could have polished the language of these letters while retaining the message. We know from Paul's letters that he used others in the actual writing of his letters. It's likely the same with these other three writers. Remember, especially in the case of James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, that he was both an intelligent man and was surrounded by the best support the early church could provide. It is not unreasonable 
to suggest that a Christian who was gifted in writing in Greek could have helped James with his letter. When one takes into account the timing and the role of the authors, I see no reason not to accept the traditional authorship of James, Jude, and First and Second Peter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Christianity. You can find this episode and all sorts of other resources on my webpage, hopesreason.com. And also find the History of Christianity page on Facebook. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash hopesreason. Even $1 a month will help this podcast to continue. Thank you and God bless.